the best things in life for free. If you subscribe to The Spectator, you'll get a whole month for free. And after that, you'll only pay a pound for full access to our website and to our app. And if you want to pay two pounds, you'll get our magazine too. To claim this offer, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash free. Hello and welcome to Table Talk, the Spectator's food and drink podcast. I'm Olivia Potts. And I'm Laura Prendergast. And today we're delighted to be joined by Amy Newsom. Amy is a horticulturist, beekeeper and cook. Having trained at Kew, she has worked with Raymond Blanc at Le Manoir and Anna Greenland at Soho Farmhouse. Amy has worked with prison reform charity Food Behind Bars, helping to bring bees and kitchen gardening into prisons. And her first book, Honey, Recipes from a Beekeeper's Kitchen, is published by Quadril and out now. Amy, welcome to Table Talk. Amy, as regular listeners know, we always start with the same question, which is what are your earliest memories of food? I think my earliest memories of food, well, actually the earliest collective family memory of food that we have is uh, it's actually a photo that ended up making it into the book. I don't remember it because I was too young, but it's a picture of me. (laughs) I think I must be about two or three years old caught red-handed literally on the dining room table at Christmas having started eating the pavlova the remains of the Christmas pavlova on the table I'd snuck in after everybody else had uh, finished dinner and was snoozing on the sofa at Christmas and just helped myself to it on the table and so there's a great photo of me covered in raspberry coulis and meringue and cream uh, eating away at that but in terms of my what I can actually remember, uh, mostly centre around my grandparents. I spent a lot of time with my grandparents when I was little. I was very lucky to have that quality time with them. We did a lot of cooking in the kitchen. So I think eating raw cake mix out of the bowl, sitting on the counter with my grandmother uh, and also spreading like a thick clover honey on rye vita and having that as a little snack at the dining table. Uh, definitely kind of things that stick out for me, I think. So was was food an important part of family life then growing up? Yeah, I can't remember. Weirdly, I can't remember a huge amount of meal times per se, but I remember being in the kitchen and helping making all of the food. And I think a lot of the time that I did spend with my grandmother often on weekends we were just always in the kitchen and she had a wonderful old school uh, pantry under the stairs with little shelves covered in jars and cans of things so a lot of my earlier memories my childhood were just basically in the kitchen and then we also used to go on uh, long walks sort of usually to visit a natural trust property but um just long countryside walks it usually with a camping stove on your in the rucksack and then we'd whip that out even when it was super windy and you could barely get a flame going on the camping stove and then we'd just cook a fry up in the middle of a hedge at about 10 a.m on the walk that kind of thing so it's kind of I remember more the process of cooking rather than sitting around a dining table and eating it I'm not sure what that says maybe we ended up with it on our laps on the sofa (laughs) And and what about school food? What are your memories of school food? School food, I have very fond memories of... (laughs) You had yellow custard, pink custard and brown custard 
And they were very, very loosely tied to banana, strawberry and chocolate. But really, you could not claim those, those flavours off them. But they always came in big plastic measuring jugs on the table and had quite a skin on them. And I absolutely loved it, skin and all. And so we used to have that on top of like a jam sponge. And Wednesdays were... <laughs> Where's This is primary school. Wednesdays were roast dinner day. And so you'd have like a like really finely sliced meat that was sort of grey and flappy in colour. And then Ribena, you got to have well, blackcurrant squash of some sort uh, on the tables. And it was just seen as the biggest treat, even though the quality of the food was absolutely awful. But I just, I, I loved it. And where did the, the gardening and the beekeeping come from? Is that something that goes back to childhood as well? Yeah, I grew up kind of because my my granddad was the head groundsman of a local kind of sports sports grounds. And uh, so he spent all of his days mowing lawns, even though he was actually allergic to grass pollen. <laughs> Possibly not the best career. But um, and he lived in the my grandparents lived in the groundsman's cottage uh, on site. And that had like a wonderful tiny garden with a tiny little fruit patch, a tiny orchard, a tiny rock garden. So as a sort of, because I was an only child until I was 10 and I spent a lot of time there, growing up in that garden and just making little worlds for myself, like in the hedgerow or the tiny dipping ponds that we had. That's sort of, I've always been really comfortable in and around gardens and plants and kind of been throwing in the odd Latin plant name from quite a young young age but then growing up completely sort of stepped away from that kind of thing in terms of university I studied history of art and then you know I went into luxury fashion marketing after university but then came back to it and actually funnily enough when I retrained in gardening my mom retrained at the same time so we we trained together and so sadly although my grandfather passed away before both of us became professional gardeners so he doesn't know that that we've carried on that family line and then when we were doing that around that same time we discovered that the gardening professionally goes back five generations they were um, professional market gardeners so vegetable growers at the time which which makes a lot of sense if you, if you sort of believe in inheriting family traits and interests because the first my route back into it when I changed careers back into it was through growing vegetables because of how much I love to cook. I started by growing things that I could eat and worked from there. What was the initial impetus for that? What got you out into the garden for sort of the first time as a grown-up? Oh, it was mental health. My mental health just bombed from sort of working in the city, going from that combination of, well, just mindless cycle of flat to tube to office to flat to home and realizing that particularly in winter I wasn't really seeing daylight apart from on weekends and I wasn't seeing any of the seasons change and staring at a screen all day was not for me and I just sort of it took me a long time to decide to pluck up the courage to change careers but the thing that actually started it was I just kind of I got more and more into cooking because it was a way for me to just feel like I was being creative and, you know, no matter how your day went and, and whether you did see the sun at all or not, 
I'd come home and I'd make something. And if I managed to make a delicious plate of food of any kind, I really felt a strong sense of achievement. And so it was a natural progression for me from then to be like, okay, let's see if I can grow some, let's have a go at growing tomatoes. Let's have a go at at growing courgettes. And very quickly turned our tiny rental back garden into just a complete jungle of vegetables. And it was just the greatest joy to sort of, you you might have a tough day at work or you might be feeling really low, but then you go out and, and realize that your cucumbers had doubled in size in two days and you just felt such a strong sense of achievement. Can you tell us a bit about your life as a beekeeper and, and also what your kind of relationship is like with honey as a as a substance and as a as a cooking product? So beekeeping, I got into beekeeping around the same time that I started growing fruit and vegetables and it was the same sort of craving a closer connection to nature and the outdoors and a a way of getting closer to food in general and so I just gave it a go as a hobby initially and joined my local beekeepers association and the first time I opened a box of bees it just it well just blew my mind it's, you, it doesn't matter what you've got going on in your day, how stressed you are, what's going on. For that sort of half an hour or so that you're inspecting a beehive and you're watching these thousands of little furry insects just go about their business because many people think when you open a beehive it must immediately be a sort of raging inferno that you have to control like a giant stinging chimney. But it's not. You just take the lid off and it's just a complete delight to watch this colony existing and, and you sort of... Yeah, everything else falls away and I would I don't I don't often use the term mindful, but it really is quite a sort of meditative and focused and very calming thing to do. And so that sort of progressed. I, I trained as a beekeeper and then as I was training as a gardener, I offered to use my training as a beekeeper in the gardens that I worked at. I started looking after the bees at Soho Farmhouse when I was working there. And I started running beekeeping experiences as well for some breweries in London and realized that I really like teaching beekeeping or introducing beekeeping to people who are interested and get get a lot of joy in sharing it. And then so these days beekeeping for me is sort of a combination between personal beekeeping and then beekeeping for other people and for other businesses and kind of balancing the two. My relationship with honey, well, it I mean it goes way back to the sort of remembering eating clover honey on Rivita with my grandparents. And I didn't, I didn't have anyone in the family who was into beekeeping. Everyone looked at me sort of quite strange when I decided to get into this one as well because the average age of people at your local beekeeping club is probably about 65. And, but the sort of relationship with honey, I think it completely changes. I have, a, I sit on the opposite end of the spectrum to... Most people thinking about honey potentially as sort of a, a squeezy, a ubiquitous bottle that you buy in the supermarket and it doesn't say where it comes from, doesn't even say what country it comes from. And it all tastes the same and you sort of drizzle it quite unthinkingly into your yogurt. And that was certainly me before I started beekeeping. But then the first time I harvested my own honey, it was a complete light bulb moment. It made me realize quite how different these two things, my home harvested honey and this squeezy bottle I used to pick up from the corner shop for everyday use actually are and how can they both be called honey because they're so fundamentally different and different in quality 
and that sort of that's where I got interested on more of a intellectual level in honey and kind of generally where the sort of food industry is at with honey. But for me, it's become a specialist ingredient in the kitchen. You use a different honey for different ways of cooking because there are so many different flavor profiles out there that you can get from like rich, dark, bitter forest honeys to super mild floral borage honeys. And you can use them all in completely different ways and you wouldn't want to use a super strong one, you know, in your tea, for example. So I think that made me realize that there's so much more that you can do with this ingredient and it's got so much diversity in terms of sort of local variants because honey tastes of exactly the landscape around it if it hasn't been overly blended and so wherever you are your honeys are going to taste different to how they taste sort of 10 miles away and the opportunities that creates in the kitchen were a complete eye-opener for me so um give us an idea of some of the the more um, unusual uses of honey and um, that that you explore in your book I mean we've as you say honey and tea and we can imagine it in cakes and that kind of thing but you go so far beyond that in in the book tell us a bit about that yeah I think kind of I just got overly excited when I realized that you could put it in lots of different things and that sort of you could combine these flavors and a honey that you might try raw on the spoon and think oh blimey that's super strong like a like an ivy honey or an oak honey or a pine honey super robust flavors I suddenly was thinking hang on that would be amazing in a whiskey cocktail like the t- it's strong enough to take it but then you get the sweetness that you might need in a whiskey cocktail but then you're getting all of these sort of resinous and um sort of tannin aromas coming like for instance if you used an oak honey So you get these sort of quite, well, very botanical flavor profiles that can come out that lend themselves particularly to different types of cocktails. And then sort of in more savory cooking, I think a lot of people were saying, oh, you're writing a honey cookbook. It must be a baking book. No, I mean, it's got loads of bakes in, don't get me wrong. Of course there are. But there are loads of savory recipes because it's just obviously sweet and salty pair wonderfully but those sort of strange unique flavor profiles you get from some of the quite interesting honeys do go really well with some quite strong flavors so things like buckwheat honey and safflower honey which are quite rich and quite strong you know they're brilliant um in a curry for example if you're going to sort of if you're stirring garam masala in at the end of cooking a curry and you've got all of the zing coming up, you're adding a bit of vinegar as well, adding it like a super robust and interesting honey to that last minute finishing that really lifts the dish gives it a whole new layer of complexity. And yeah. I mean, this is maybe a silly question, but for someone who doesn't know much about beekeeping, how can you tell what type of honey it is? Like, how can you tell where the bees have been going? You have to have a lot of knowledge to know that. Well, it's actually quite <laughs> it's actually quite difficult to, to be very specific about what your honey is, purely because you can't control where the bees go. So for example, if you have say if you see a jar of orange blossom honey or lavender honey, something that we call a monofloral honey, so one flower species has made it and that's how it's being marketed. The way that that exists, and you can be confident enough to say that, is that the hives, the bees that make the honey, 
are in, the hives have been placed within a large enough landscape of that particular plant. So usually in a farming setting or a natural woodland setting. So for orange blossom honey, you would be putting the hives usually in orange farms. And then you can know that they extend far enough without anything else flowering at the same time that the oranges flower to know that your bees have been feeding on it. And usually, so bees forage within a sort of one to three mile radius, very roughly, although they'll go, hopefully, they want to go as short as possible to expend as little energy as possible. So you kind of know that so long as you've got a a large enough landscape of one floor variety, so that tends to be a farming crop, that's how that you can can produce a monofloral honey like orange blossom or borage is quite a popular UK runny honey. But in, and in terms of scientifically proving that your honey is that variety, it's a secondary test that, w- that we do, which is that you send off a honey sample for testing, but they actually look at the pollen grains that are present in the honey floating in it because you can identify specific pollen grains under a microscope from different plants. Now, there's a little bit of a caveat in there in the sense of bees sometimes forage nectar from one plant species and uh, pollen from another so you can't be a hundred percent sure but for the purposes of testing that's how you make sure that your honey is particular variety so amy do you have favorite varieties of honey so i had to install a whole new shelf in my kitchen when i was uh, researching for this book which is purely a honey shelf it's a whole drawer and so i've got about 35 honeys currently in rotation because honey never goes off right so it's a brilliant thing to have a little library of honeys and then you can you choose a spoonful of each depending on what you're cooking and i would highly recommend people have a library of honeys or at least four i would say four very different ones is a really great setup for the kitchen but in terms of my favorites at the moment i really like borage honey and that's because it's a great british It's a great UK uh, runny honey that's produced here because most of the runny honey, the squeezy honey that you buy in the supermarket that says on the back of it, a blend of EU and non-EU honeys, and it doesn't say anything else, unfortunately, because labeling regulations are really lax at the moment. Um, so So that honey has been blended from all over the world. However, most runny honey is acacia honey, but acacia doesn't grow naturally in the UK. It's actually an invasive species in a lot of countries. So all of that honey is imported, whereas borage honey is a British-grown runny honey. And it's from borage plants, star star flower, the beautiful sort of little cucumber-flavoured edible flowers and leaves. And that's a relatively new farming crop in the UK that's actually proving quite a success story for farmers as a quick crop to get in. It's grown for its oil, which is used in cosmetics primarily and health supplements. And then beekeepers follow the farmers. So they started putting their hives in the borage crop and realizing that it produces this really great, clear, mild honey, which is a really good sort of all-round drizzle. It's great on young, fresh cheeses. It's great in a sort of drizzled over pretty much anything and everything. You can stir it into your tea, anything really gentle where you don't want a really strong, punchy kick. Um, So that's at the moment, that is my sort of go-to runny honey. And then something like, I'm still a really big fan. I think it's a nostalgia thing for childhood because my grandparents already always had it. It's clover honey because it's your clover honey is like a soft set creamed honey. 
So it's a spoonable one. And I think that's just so satisfying. Not It doesn't bend your spoon. It's just, <laughs> just nicely spoonable. And that's a good one for being able to just satisfyingly dollop and spread. It's a much better one for sort of toast. And it's got a, a stronger flavor than Borotani, but it's still very well rounded. Um, so sort of runny, I'd go for borage. Creamed or soft set, I'd go for clover. And then I really like safflower honey, which is actually quite difficult to get in the UK. I've still got a jar from a California friend bought back from a uh, very bougie organic farmer's market. It's a wonderful hand-drawn label and I'm still eking it out. It's like a dark treacle. It's really strong. And that's the kind of thing that I'll stir into like a, a nice sort of strong cocktail as an interesting element, almost almost like the way you would use a bitters in a cocktail, to be honest. And tell us about Food Behind Bars. So Food Behind Bars is a really amazing prison reform charity who are doing a lot of good work to improve the quality of conditions in prisons, mostly through food, both through improving the food itself, but also giving inmates the opportunity to learn how to cook and to also learn the business skills of setting up their own food businesses. And this is a as a um, as a route to reduce reoffending, but also to integrate back into society and contribute to society and have job opportunities after coming out of prison. And so the work that I did with uh, Feed Behind Bars was at Swimpen Hall Prison up north, and they already had existing glass houses on site, and they had a few staff members who were super keen on the idea of beekeeping, but they didn't really know where to start. And they wanted to make more of their existing grounds and garden to be able to grow food. So Food Behind Bars came in with funding and set up a kitchen garden program there. So we were working with the inmates to start growing some interesting produce that they could feel a sense of satisfaction and achievement from learning how to grow, looking after it well, and then delivering it into the kitchen where Food Behind Bars would also teach the inmates how to cook with the produce, how to use it properly. And many of the inmates were coming from inner city environments where they don't see fresh vegetables and certainly don't see sort of growing them. So it really, it was quite remarkable how much it just could instantly change somebody's outlook or mood for the day by just getting utterly enthralled by, you know, sowing some lettuce and realizing a few weeks later that um, they had something to harvest and they'd done it themselves. And that's how lettuce grows. And these were mostly quite young men, so sort of um, sort of 18 years old. And it was, it, yeah, it was really um, impactful to see how much of a change in their personality and their outlook, outlook it gave to be able to get involved and in, in grow fresh produce. And as a partner to that, we set them up with the right beekeeping equipment and with the local beekeeping association so that they could undertake a training scheme in beekeeping with a view to keeping their own bees on site, which they're now doing, so they can harvest their own honey as well to, to go into the kitchens. And there are hives everywhere, right? Like, yes, there are hives on the top of sort of Storky restaurants and Fortnum and Mason, but there are also hives on the top of the Old Bailey and... I think John Lewis on Oxford Street and that kind of thing. I mean, they really are all around us. If someone wanted to become involved or, or was just contemplating the idea of becoming involved in beekeeping, what's the first step? How do you go about doing that? I think it really depends where you are. For example, as you've mentioned with the with London, they're actually 
very ubiquitous now, beehives are on the top of a lot of buildings. And this has been a trend over the past probably 15 years for urban beekeeping has become really popular and businesses have cottoned on. Everyone wants hives on the top of their building. But actually, unfortunately, it's reached really unsustainable levels. There are too many hives. Uh, well, many people argue there are too many hives in London or at least poorly distributed. So there will be quite a few hives in one area where there's very minimal forage for the bees to feed on. And then the other aspect, apart from just having enough forage for the bees, so planting more pollinator-friendly plants in parks and gardens. So for example, this is sort of where my horticulturist experience comes in because the, the green walls that we see going up on buildings are planting up the side of a building or the roof of a building with, with nice lush green plants. Many of those plants don't flower, so actually they don't produce any quality forage at all for pollinators. They're known as green deserts. So we need to be a lot more inventive with the plants that we are trying to green up our cities with. We need to be greening them up with flowers as well. But aside from there being issues of, of whether there's enough food for your bees to eat, if you're contemplating becoming a beekeeper in, in a city or somewhere with a load of beehives, there's also actually a really big impact on all of the wild species of bee and pollinator out there. Because the honeybee is only one species out of about 250 species of bee in the UK. And if you bring in a, a colony of honeybees, which is anything from about 35,000 bees, suddenly into a little area, then all those other 249 species of bee, most of which are solitary bees or, or live in much smaller groupings than these huge honeybee colonies, their ecosystem and the amount of forage that they have is actually quite impacted by the honeybees coming in. And then the honeybees can also carry pests and diseases. So I wouldn't say this, I don't say this as a reason to be put off beekeeping, although it sounds a bit doom and gloom because everyone gets so excited about honey and beekeeping and they think beekeepers are saving the bees, which is a little misguided. But um, I think the famous quote is that um, telling beekeepers that they're saving the bees is like telling a chicken farmer they're saving wild songbirds in terms of realizing that the, the honeybee, honeybees are bred livestock with farmers. So I, so it's not to put anybody off it, but you, you need to think carefully about where you're introducing bees. And the way to learn more about whether where you want to put them is a good place to introduce bees if there are too many honeybees there already, whether there's enough forage, is to do it via your local beekeeping association because this is a network of beekeepers we already know who's got hives where, so you can you can suss out and get advice from your local beekeeping association of where to put them. And actually, it's quite interesting in the sense of you might have an image in your head of, of putting bees in the rural idyllic countryside and thinking that's the best place for them. But it, similarly to cities in interesting ways, farming areas depending on the crops that are being grown actually might have very little forage it's restricted often to their hedgerows or little patches of um, unfarmable woodland in between the fields and if the crops they're growing are not pollinator crops that don't produce nectar or pollen then actually there might not be a lot of food in the area bees honeybees actually do really well in suburban areas with gardens because there's a huge variety of forage for them so Depending on where you are, get in touch with your local beekeeping association and go from there just to make sure that you're doing it sustainably. And certainly in London, be super mindful about where you put your beehives. So taking that on board, as someone who perhaps doesn't want to, to look after bees or appreciates that they're in an area which is, is very 
hive heavy. What can we be doing to save the bees? I think it's it it's pretty accepted now that bees are in danger and that that is a symptom of a much bigger problem. If you have any kind of garden, or even if you don't, what, what are the things that we should be doing to save the bees? Well, the important thing to do if you want to save the bees is firstly to realise that there are so many different bees out there, and that leads you to realise that they've got lots of different requirements. So out of our 250 species of bee in the UK, they've all got, I mean, it's really cute, but they've all got different length tongues. So that means that they can eat from different types of flower. So something like a common carder bee, which is a type of bumblebee, has quite a long tongue and they really like foxgloves. But other species of bee wouldn't necessarily go for a foxglove because their tongues might be too short. So one of the most important things to do in terms of if you want to save your, if you want to do your bit to contribute to saving our pollinators, which are in decline, is to plant as many flowering plants as possible and go for a good diversity of, of flowering plants. And also to make sure that if you can, that your plants are coming from nurseries where they're not, they're not being sprayed in loads of chemicals, because we know that glyphosate has um, a huge, and neonicotinoids have impacts on pollinators, uh, a detrimental impact on them. So if you can buy plants from nurseries that don't treat with pesticides and herbicides, that's a good start because those chemicals can have resid can stay in the plant residually and then come out in the nectar and the pollen. And then it's really about kind of if you have a windowsill, if you have a front garden that got paved over to give you a car space, if you have got a little bit of back garden, it's trying to green those up with flowering plants in any way you can. And then if you are lucky enough to have a larger garden, identify your bloom gap. So have a look at what you've got, make a note of when it flowers, pop that into a little rough calendar and figure out when you've got a big gap. So very early in the year, species like bumblebees, something flowering in sort of January, February, very early March is really important to them because the queen bumblebee is coming out of hibernation on her own to start a whole new colony for the year. And she really needs some food. So things that flower super early on. So anything from sort of snowdrops through to crocuses. That's another little thing that will help at that time of year. So and then I, you know, a lot of people give ivy stick because they think it um, cracks up all of their walls and they tear it down often or it's pulling down your fence. But actually, we now know that ivy doesn't impact your garden structures it will find cracks if you've already got them and then it will get in and make them worse but ivy is a really brilliant um, pollinator plant flowers really well and bees absolutely love ivy and it produces a very interesting like dark rich ivy honey which i would put as a cocktail making honey and then the other thing to do is really vote with your wallet in terms of what you buy in the supermarket so making sure that you go for good quality honey buy the best honey you can afford so what Good quality, what I mean by good quality is spending what you can afford to on honey, but also going for honeys that it's got a really clear location of origin on it. So it might say Somerset clover honey. It might say uh, Greek thyme honey, if you do want to go for ones imported from abroad. I wouldn't buy honey which just says honey and then on the back it just says a blend of EU and non-EU honeys because this has been blended from honeys imported from all over the world and at the moment, unfortunately, 
there have been some tests done very recently that were widely publicized into fake honey. And of all of the honeys tested that were bought in the UK, and this was an EU study, uh, they all tested positive for not being real, for being fake in the sense of having sugar in them and other adulterating um, ingredients. And honey is one of the top adulterated foods. And until we can sort out legislation to make sure that that labeling and that provenance is clear and we can sort out this issue, then you really need to be buying stuff which is really properly labeled. And buy local if you can. The UK has got a load of beekeepers, but we we can't um, supply the demands of consumers who are used to, you know, just grabbing honey off the shelf and, and drizzling it over their morning yogurt and their tea every day. That's a lot of honey to produce. And actually, honey is is expensive to make. It's difficult. We don't want to have an unsustainable amount of beehive. So actually, I think it's important to start treating honey as a treat rather than just a liquid equivalent to sugar, because that's where the problem comes in, in terms of this unsustainable, mass-produced, poorly made honey that unfortunately we've all kind of come to presume is, is what honey is. Whereas if you are spending a little bit more on a jar of minimally processed honey, so it hasn't been overly heated, it hasn't been overly filtered and micro-blended, then you'll be really surprised at the floral aroma, the flavor of it, but also you'll know where it's from. You'll know it's, it's, it's good honey, it's pure honey. And if you can buy it as locally as possible, you know, get in touch with your local beekeepers association. If you're not ready to get hives yourself or it's an area where there's already a lot of hives, then you can support beekeepers and good honey by buying, buying through the local association as well. And tell us about cooking or, or eating at home. What, what is, what's comfort food for you? Is it honey? For a period of time, it was a busman's holiday. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> <laughs> Because obviously it's a super sweet ingredient and if you're cooking with it every day, like when you do recipe testing, it's pretty intense. But no, I mean, I do use it really often in cooking. Actually, I have, my partner will immediately mention fried chicken. I'm obsessed with fried chicken. So I, <laughs> so that's definitely a comfort food. If I'm going for like a takeout or I want to eat something not very good for me, it will usually, usually be really crunchy. Like for me, comfort food is either like really crunchy or really soft and and sort of equal parts carby cheesy in a bowl so a lot of pasta gets eaten and a lot of spicy foods and fried chicken but then actually I would I will say it that one of the last recipes that I wrote for the book was the fig leaf panna cotta with heather honey recipe which ended up being one of my favorites and one of the most popular recipes of the book and I had I was not in the regular habit of eating panna cotta, um, sorry, making panna cottas when I came up with that recipe. I just got inspired. It was summer. I was feeling all the vibes. I think it was about, it was probably about this time of year. And I just, I just decided I was going to be somebody who makes panna cottas now. And then I was really <laughs> we surprised. We all want to be su- somebody who makes panna cotta, Amy. We all want right? that. <laughs> you know, and then I was actually, when I went, when I sort of thought, actually, this, this tastes pretty good. And then I properly tested it and, and refined it. I was like, actually, that's a lot easier to make than I thought it would be. And you don't need a panna cotta mold. You can just make it in jars with lids on, whack them in the fridge, take them out, eat them out of the jar. And so actually that's become a bit of a comfort food for me now that I've realized how easy they are to make. But given that I've just mentioned like carby cheesy, fried chicken, and then essentially a jar of cream with honey in it, my waistline has definitely expanded over the period of writing this book. And and to finish, tell us what your desert island meal would be, your, your ultimate final no holds barred meal what would you want 
I, this might come as a bit of a surprise actually, but I would probably go with dim sum. I have a big love affair with Xiaolongbao, the juicy pork dumplings that like have that amazing gelatinous broth that just bursts in your mouth. And then you have the really nice sort of rice vinegar ginger dipping sauce that goes with it and that flavor combination of this like hot fatty broth soft dumpling and then the sharp gingery vinegar kick on it is just absolutely magical so i would probably and then i absolutely love chung fun really nice slippery battered prawn dim sum so it would probably be a huge table of dim sum i love that would you have something sweet to finish or are you have you still got ptsd from from the book yeah i probably would i'd probably go for something like baklava because that is just sort of the combination of like a square of i've got a couple of variations on baklava in the book because it is such an iconic kind of honey recipe and i'd probably go for a square of the one that i've got which is uh pistachio hibiscus and it's got pollen in it as well because pollen tastes absolutely delicious. So I've I've made sure to put it in quite a few recipes in the book, um, which you obviously you can buy it from health food shops. But I, a little square of baklava drizzled in like an orange blossom honey with a little black coffee. Yeah, that would that would do me. That's also I think that is probably one of the chicest desert island meals that we we've had from anyone. <laughs> like a whole table of dim sum and then baklava with a black coffee. Like there's. The, <laughs> it doesn't go together at all, but it is so chic. I really like it. Very unapologetically so. I'm not chic at all in real life, so I, I very much appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> Amy, it's been a complete joy to have you on Table Talk. Thank you so much for joining us. 